мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. We are under attack. It is an attack against Western democracies and on the institutions that bind them. What Russia is much more interested in doing is depicting the West as a failure. The regime and President Yanukovych, they were trying to protect their enormous wealth. This is Kremlin File. Hi, everyone, and welcome, welcome to Season 3 of Kremlin File. And this is really, really special for us, also because we're kicking it off with one of our favorite guests, David Kramer. David, welcome back. Great to be back, and we're glad Thank you guys are back as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we can just continue the conversation that we started in Season 2, right, David? Exactly, exactly. Right, right? <laughs> Exactly. Um, just so that we can catch up, okay, on a little of what has been going on. Uh, I'll start off and then Olga, I want you to jump in, okay, as well. Um, we be, uh, let's say the full-scale invasion, as we know it, was in February. Um, and the let's say the first real results we were seeing, uh, the defense of Kiev and the Battle of Kiev. And then things started to move, you know, north and over to the east, um, with you know the liberation of a lot of territory as they were going along. Uh, Olga, can you tell us a little bit about because there's one thing that we were talking about even before hopping on, which was Bakhmut itself and how much attention has been brought to Bakhmut because that's where everybody is you no know, focusing on. And tell talk a little bit about what we were talking about. So I will just say that my mother, my poor mother, called me in, I think, March or April because of the heavy fascination by American media on Bakhmut. And she was like, oh, my God, is Ukraine going to fall? And I had to kind of, you know, bring her back into perspective. And I'm like, listen, Mom, Bakhmut is the size of my zip code in Staten Island. So if my zip code fell America is not falling. And basically, I mean, it was a very it was it was painful for Ukraine. It was obviously horrendous atrocities for the residents in Bakhmut who remained. But it was also a good strategy because, frankly, Russia decided to fight for this Bakhmut. They turned it into a meat grinder. And basically, all you just saw was people voluntarily going to, you know, die. And that's it. But as far as having relevance to the whole of Ukraine, it did not. It took 10 months for Russia to capture four and a half square miles. 10 months. Yeah. And yeah. this is temporarily because now they're already losing street by street by street. And and that's it. That's but right. with that, we also did, which will go to the next question to um David. With that, we also saw from what was building in Bakhmut, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the terrorist, you know, getting more and more angry at the defense ministry. Since last September, since Ukraine's successful counteroffensive, I mean, Prigozhin has said things that are unthinkable. Like I played it to my family from the Soviet Union and they were like, my God, like, you know, scared that, that, that authorities were going to show up because of like what they were even listening to. I mean, he crossed every unspoken line going after Gerasimov, after Shoigu, going after the elite, going after the oligarchs. And basically since last year, I've been writing that he was using the same populist tactics that he deployed against the West, against the United States, against all the far right leaders mm -hmm. across Europe, against Russia now. And then we end up with this mutiny and our poor media searching for Prigozhin because every yeah. all day long it's where's Prigozhin. Yeah. And then fixated. we end up with this mutiny of, you know, uh, hey, Paul, Prigozhin announcing that he's going to basically head to Moscow. But, you know, these columns start emerging and, and they go through Rostov. He knocks on the door of, of the uh, southern military district with, with armed men and basically is like welcomed in. And it left 
Russia and Putin completely exposed. I mean, it really was emperor without clothes. Here, Putin is in hiding as columns of tanks are coming. Where is FSB? Where is internal ministry? Where is the local police? Where is military? Everyone slunk away. You didn't see anything. You saw a few helicopters that the Wagnerites shot down, like, you know, as if they were playing a video game. And that was it. That's all you saw. And then, you know, we see this march towards Moscow. And that's where I want to go to David. What do you think? Where does this leave Russia? What is your overview of the situation? What do you think of Putin? What do you think of his power, the regime and just, you know, the state of Russia after this? It certainly has become a muddled situation to the extent that it was clear before. It is much more complicated these days. Everything you just cited, Olga, about what Prigozhin has said and then did with his move up through Rostov, up to Voronezh and on his way to Moscow, anyone else would have been not just arrested, but would have been fired upon as they apparently tried to do with those helicopters and the plane that were shot down uh, and killed. Um, You look at the numbers of Russians who have been arrested and imprisoned for doing things that pale by comparison. Um, A father of a daughter who uh, in school uh, apparently said something and the father was arrested in Belarus, no less, um, and held responsible for what his daughter said or did. Um, Others, uh, our friends, Vladimir Karamurza, uh, Ilya Yashin and others who have spoken out criticizing the military campaign. They, they obviously don't deserve what has happened to them. And yet Prigozhin, as you said, since really last fall, has just been blasting the Russian military leadership and even occasionally has hinted at criticism of Putin himself. And what happens to him after he orders his forces to move on to Moscow a deal is struck. We still don't know the details of it. We don't even know what role Lukashenko really played from Belarus. Um, and Prigozhin is so far at least a free man, uh, apparently collecting money that was seized uh, from him, uh, regaining possession of a, a pistol that has important sentimental value to him, maybe a sledgehammer (laughs) since his guys use a sledgehammer to execute uh, any Wagner forces who were captured or try to escape. Um, I mean, this is just kind of unbelievable what's been happening. And yet, I think it would be premature to say this is the beginning of the end for Putin. Um, Putin may wind up using this as a way to further consolidate his control and may think that if this was the worst that any threats might pose to him, then he's got this under control. I, I take the point that the Wagner guys were moving up pretty uh, effortlessly, uh, 200 kilometers from Moscow. And yet I, I do imagine had they gotten much closer that the Russian forces behind Putin would have unleashed their uh, fury on on the Wagner guys. I think that is a, in part one of the reasons they turned around and, and went back. But it, the whole thing is just baffling, quite frankly. And um, but but I do think that while Putin was exposed for having these weaknesses and the fissures within the regime and among his supporters, um, he may wind up emerging from this in a stronger position. After all. Then you have the whole impact on on what this means for Russia's efforts uh, with its invasion and war against Ukraine. And and we can talk about that, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, as of now, Putin's taken such a harsh stance with like Sarovikin, who disappeared. Um, It looks like there was chatter and it looks like it's being put out by Russian uh, intelligence services that Sarovikin basically had. Uh, his ribs broken and that his face is disfigured and, you know, and and I think it might be a warning. But at the same time, as he cracks down against his own, I mean, Sarovikin, who is now supposedly held captive by the Russian services. I mean, this is, you know, the General Armageddon who launched his, uh, you know, Russia's uh, attack inside of um 
Syria against the Syrian opposition. And I mean, he is, you know, extremely well liked, well known, uh, has a lot of respect with people underneath. So if someone is treating him like this, you know, and if this crackdown continues, do you think there might be fissures that like continue, you know, to a point and with Ukraine, if they continue making moves and taking back territory, do you think that these fissures might grow? It depends on what they ultimately do with Prigozhin, I think. Um, one other person, by the way, who seems to have disappeared is is Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff, uh, Mark Milley's uh, counterpart, essentially, in Russia. And uh, in contrast, the defense minister, Shoigu, has been visible, um, has been making appearances. Um, I, I think Shoigu's position, uh, paradoxically, may have been um, strengthened because Putin does not want to seem to remove Shoigu under pressure coming from Prigozhin. Why he doesn't take the same position toward Gerasimov, I don't know. And his handling of Suravikin, yeah, he... So so I'm not sure, uh, to answer the specific question, whether there'll be more fissures if Suravikin is dealt with rather decisively, if Prigozhin is dealt with rather decisively. Um, but I do think that um, while Putin may be able to emerge from this in a consolidated position, the impact on Russian forces in Ukraine is likely to be negative. Um, I, I can't imagine. I mean, as you know, morale among the Russian forces on the front line was already very low. And for those guys, as they get wind of what's been happening, Prigozhin can get away with launching a mutiny and uh, he, he's getting all this money returned. And we're out here on the receiving end of Russian, uh, rather Ukrainian uh, bullets and missiles. Uh, I, I can't imagine this is going to be a boost to Russian morale on the front lines. I, I can't imagine this has been a big boost for Wagner mercenaries either, um, unless they emerge from this in a stronger position. But they were ordered by their leader, Prigozhin, to march on to Moscow. And then suddenly he pulled the plug on them. Um, the only ones I think who might emerge from this with high morale would be the Ukrainians, who uh, might be able to exploit uh, this infighting among the Russians if it continues. Um, and they are in the midst of their counteroffensive, um, which is making progress slower than some had hoped at this point, but still making progress. And I think we haven't seen the the bulk of it yet. The Ukrainians are, are I think, in the process of probing to determine where Russian weaknesses are. So all of this is unfolding against the backdrop of Putin's disastrous decision to invade Ukraine. And that is weakening Russia more than anything else and leading to all this criticism. So it, it, it's a total mess. Um, and, and I think uh, we just have to be mindful that um, making predictions about most things, but particularly about what's happening in Russia, uh, is is a risky thing to do. <laughs> it's a mess playing out on Telegram. If only yeah, Telegram absolutely. was around during the collapse of Soviet Union, we would be like, oh, so this is how it went down. Because it's, yeah. it's definitely incredible. But you know, we're yeah. kind of back to the Kremlinology days again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shoigu is making appearances. Gerasimov is not. Suravikin has disappeared. It's like the old who's standing next to whom uh, the Soviet yeah. military parades back in the day. Yeah. So, so we are a little bit back to that again. Um, and, and, you know, these appearances that Putin is making, it's stirring up questions whether these are, are doubles uh, of him, <laughs> uh, lookalikes. Um, what do they call that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some, anyway, so it, it, I mean, because as we know, we've seen Putin at these huge long tables. He doesn't want to yeah. get close to people. And, and there he is sudden, kissing this, yeah, this exactly. teenage girl in Dagestan. Taking selfies. Uh, like exactly. so, Putin is that, not a selfie guy, you know. I I sat there and I said, no, no, yeah. no, exactly. And uh, and he, and to deal with a, a mutiny, I mean, he goes and draws cartoons. I mean, right. what yeah, was that exactly? Right. And Dagestan, just for people who know, just a little yeah. background. Dagestan, Putin is hated. He is hated by the local population. He is hated, basically, not really liked by the leadership because um years ago. 
and it's happened multiple times, uh, one of their beloved leaders was taken out. So Dagestan is not a place where, you know, people would be running and taking selfies with Putin. In yeah. Dagestan, the famous video emerged where the recruiter uh, recruit recruited um, uh, mobilized uh, Dagestan residents uh, were in a training camp and they just got infuriated and like basically like shoved the Russian wow. military people out, kicked the fence out and, you know, stormed off like we're done. So, I mean, yeah. this the fact that he used Dagestan is also very yeah. uh, interesting and questioning. Uh, the same thing with Rostov, too, no? He's not he's not liked at all. They'd love to kill him there. Uh -huh. So that was one of the reasons maybe why Wagner was it was just so easy for Prigozhin to just, you know, waltz in there. Uh, that whole area, you know, yeah. So yeah, from what, from and, what and, I know. you know, we, we didn't see a turnout of massive numbers of Russians in support of Putin. Now, this yeah. all unfolded quickly. It happened over a weekend um, and it was over quickly. Um, but. You're you're right that we saw in in Rostov you saw um, quite a few hard to say but quite a few Russians turning out cheering on Prigozhin. Um, he's become a bit of a celebrity in, in Russia, which also may mean his days are numbered. Putin doesn't like uh, big personalities, big celebrities that uh, risk drowning him out. Um, but I, I think when you're you're right that Prigozhin tapped into. Mm -hmm. uh, a sentiment that exists in Russia that is hard to measure, and you're not going to see it in Lovada no. polls. No disrespect no. to Lovada, no. uh, but that this war is just not very popular. No. And uh, mm -hmm. and in Dag I mean, a lot of the troops are coming from places like Dagestan. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. Where well, they're dying in, in droves. Exactly, yeah. and and so they're getting killed um, or wounded, and that isn't gonna sustain a lot of popular support yeah yeah also because for the popular support um putin would have to rent out a lot of buses to get people there exactly. i'd like to move on uh that was just my little quip hmm. uh i wanted to move on go back actually to something that you said david because of all the fissures and all the things that we should be taking advantage okay of this situation um as it stands now there's a huge event that's coming up next week in vilnius all right. So the NATO, okay, uh, NATO summit, that's going to be on the 11th and the 12th. And it's my view, Olga's view. I'm sure it's your, your view as well, but I want you to expand on it. Um, we need Ukraine in NATO and NATO needs, right? Ukraine in there. All right. For, uh, let's say the whole collective architecture, security architecture. This is what we're talking about. What are your views on this, David? Exactly where the two of you are. I, I added my name to a open letter that was published in Politico the other day um, that says Ukraine needs a roadmap to NATO membership ASAP. Um, I, I, I'm I, my view is that Ukraine, uh, rather NATO, would be lucky to have yes. Ukraine as a member. Yes, very. Uh, good. There is no other country that has a proven track record of fighting against and defending its territory as Ukraine has. Um, and, and so it has proven to be a net contributor, which is always a question asked about new members that come in. Are they going to contribute to the security of the alliance overall or not? Um, there's no question Ukraine has. I mean, Ukraine is yeah. fighting this war, not yeah. asking for our troops on the ground. They are asking for our weapons and they deserve our weapons. But uh, look, this this promise uh, to Ukraine goes back 15 years to 2008 at the Bucharest NATO uh, summit, uh, where NATO leaders agreed that uh, Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO. Didn't say when, didn't say how. Um, Ukraine's gone through ups and downs. Yanukovych ended pursuit of NATO membership in 2010. It, it was reinserted uh, and now is part of the Ukrainian constitution. Um, and, and huge majorities of, of Ukrainians support NATO membership. That wasn't the case in 2008 or 2010, even 2013. Um, but after the initial Russian invasion in 2014, support for joining NATO among Ukrainians went up significantly. And particularly after February of last year, support for joining NATO um, has gone up significantly um, the, the, I, I really think that at, at next week's summit, NATO leaders need to lay out a timeline 
um, and the Washington summit, uh, which will be next mm, year for NATO, right. is the place, I would argue, uh, to welcome Ukraine in as a member. There are a lot of issues to be sorted out, no question. I don't mean to uh, simplify this to the point where uh, you ignore legitimate questions that get raised. Um, but uh, Ukraine has been carrying the water for all of us, yes. um, frankly, over almost the past nine years, not just the past year and a half. And it's time to recognize and appreciate that. Being a member of NATO reduces significantly the likelihood of being attacked by Russia. Um, we, we see this with the Baltic states. We see this with Poland. To be clear, Estonia was the victim of a cyber attack in 2007, mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. didn't respond to that. Um, but none of those states has seen the uh, movement of Russian troops across the border. Um, we just have to be more uh, understanding and flexible in responding to hybrid kinds of threats that might be posed. But if you're a member of NATO, Putin does not want a war with NATO. He doesn't want a war with the United States. And if a country has Article 5 security guarantees, you're less likely to suffer from a Russian invasion. Yeah, that's right. And another reminder, too, that all of the countries, okay, this is just to dispel, right, certain narratives that we keep seeing over and over and over. It's sickening. Each of those countries asked to be admitted. There was no other, right? It They're was not being dragged their into the alliance. Will. Exactly. It was of their free will. They saw the actual benefit to their security architectures. 100%. But also... It doesn't help when Russia invades Georgia, as it did in 2008, when it invades Ukraine in 2014, when it launches a full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022. It shouldn't be a shock that those countries want protection uh, by being members of the NATO alliance from future Russian aggression. Um, right. Absolutely. These countries are seeking NATO membership on their own. And to reject it is to deny them agency. And it also would be to grant Russia a de facto veto over their aspirations to join. Uh, NATO has an open door policy. Countries have to meet the requirements. Uh, to me, the uh, Ukraine clearly has met those requirements. And so NATO, I think, has an obligation to, to lay out a clear plan for membership. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Ukraine and NATO is European security. I mean, exactly. if Europe, European soil wants to be secure, you know, and we don't want to see Russia launch another full-scale invasion in five years or 10 years, NATO, uh, Ukraine in NATO, actually it should be NATO in Ukraine, because Ukraine, like you said, has only battle-tested mm -hmm. military right now. That's right. That's um, right. Uh, out of all the countries. Um, but, you know, it, it, if... Sorry, can I just interrupt for one second? I apologize. One other thing that I think we're all in agreement on, but I think worth noting and not taking for granted is NATO enlargement has had nothing to do with the Russian invasion. Yeah. Um, remember, in 2014, Yanukovych had already removed seeking membership from Ukraine's foreign policy. Ukraine at that point in 2013 was looking to sign agreements with the European Union. No one was talking about Ukraine and NATO in 2013. And, and Putin had a pro-Russian president in power in Kyiv and yet wasn't yeah. satisfied with that. So NATO had nothing to do with it in 2013. In 2022, the year before, uh, Zelensky was making the rounds trying to get generate support for more uh, for closer ties between Ukraine and NATO. He wasn't getting anywhere. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I say that critically of NATO allies. President Biden was raising the issue of corruption as an obstacle for Ukraine's mm -hmm. membership in NATO. So again, NATO enlargement has had nothing to do with this. Um, this is Putin just acting in an imperial, uh, mercurial way uh, where he thinks Ukraine is not an independent state, doesn't need to be recognized as such and that Russia has the right to flex its muscles any way it wants. So the, the NATO enlargement is just a red herring uh, raised by people and now being used as a further argument against inviting Ukraine to join. Sorry, sorry for the interruption. No, thank no, no. you. 100%. Thank you for saying that because, I mean, this is one of the Russian disinformation campaigns yes. that they run across social media yeah. and in Western yeah. press is that NATO is uh, enlargement is the reason. And I mean, frankly, it goes 
goes even further, if you go over the past few centuries of history, you will mm-hmm. see the same continuous actions. And obviously NATO didn't exist at that point. So mm-hmm. it's something, you know, and and Russia has made it very clear, I mean, over the past decade that they, you know, uh, want Lithuania and Estonia back and uh, Moldova and, uh, you know, and basically, I mean, they're just expanding and they want the Soviet Union reinstated. Meanwhile, you know, all the countries from there already moved on and our democracy is functioning, thriving. And they're like, you know, you're stuck in the past. We're moving. We moved on a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And another red herring too, Olga, this we talked about before hopping on and maybe we can get David's opinion on this, the importance of Crimea and getting Mm -hmm. Crimea back. Because yeah. now, now that we're still in the security apparatus uh, section of our talk, um, one of the things that uh, I see consistently is that, oh, no, you know, Ukraine can just sort of, you know, negotiate over you know, you, uh, over Crimea. Uh, David, why is this, why does Ukraine need Crimea back? Right? Even there- Zelensky, on, on the interview in CNN the other night, he said, we cannot imagine... Ukraine without Crimea, as long as Crimea is under Russian occupation, this means one thing, the war is not over. This is what he said on CNN in the interview. So Absolutely. I mean, that that's one of the principal reasons, of course. And uh, as long as Russia would still have Crimea as a launching pad, um, it will continue to threaten U- Ukraine. I mean, it could do it in other ways, but being in Ukraine, uh, in Crimea would pose a paramount threat. Um, it would also mean recognition of an illegal annexation going back to 2014, which would be a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Um, it would be a violation of many uh, covenants and agreements, and of course, the Budapest Memorandum in 1994. Um, but I, I would argue, in addition to the security argument, that one of the most important is Ukrainians do not support conceding Crimea to the Russians. Um, And again, this is about Ukrainian agency in in all these decisions. Um, And it is incredibly important, I think, to appreciate and respect the views of the vast majority of Ukrainians who reject any territorial concessions, any compromises, and do not support surrendering Crimea to Russian control. Moreover, if that were to be done, if, if the West were to try to force some agreement on Ukraine to yield Crimea to the Russians, we would then be consigning um, several million people, about two million people as a population back in 2014, uh, to Russian control. And while there may be some in Crimea who wouldn't mind that, Crimean Tartars would not be among those. They have been uh, brutally victimized going yeah. back to Stalin's days when they were forced to Siberia and Central Asia, half of them died, uh, and then allowed to return toward the end of the Soviet Union. They came back and have been victimized again since 2014, not just since 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the treatment of some of these uh, segments of the population in Crimea has just been absolutely brutal. And if we were to allow Russia to retain control over Crimea, we would essentially be giving a green light to this uh, terrible treatment of Crimean Tartars in particular, but ethnic Ukrainians as well on the peninsula. And that's something we we sh- certainly shouldn't allow. They yeah. set up concentration yeah. camps in yeah. 2014-15. I mean, Absolutely. yes. <laughs> and yeah. and and for yeah. anyone who actually, you know, is like, oh, I don't understand why does Ukraine not want to give away uh, uh, Crimea? You know, I my basic answer is pick a territory in your country that you are perfectly exactly. fine. You know, you want to carve off out a few states or, uh, you know, this territory, you know, you pick like. <laughs> why don't you give them Sardinia or give them yeah, Sicilia I mean, or whatever like, it like, is, Paris. It's give like, them. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, Russia invading United States, uh, holding, you know, three states and then people saying, well, I mean, you know, come on, U.S., do you really need those three states? I mean, you know, just hand it away and that's it. I mean, give me a Russia decides one day to retake Alaska. Um, And uh, I mean, Russia recognized Crimea as part of Ukraine with the breakup of the Soviet Union. 
uh, with the Russia-Ukraine Friendship Treaty in 1997. Um, of course, this goes back to Khrushchev's days uh, when he uh, put Crimea as part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Um, but there was agreement that those borders at that time in 91 would be respected by all parties. The, I mentioned the Budapest Memorandum of 94. So um, absolutely, we, we, we can't. No. It, and it, it is particularly galling for people in the West who aren't doing the fighting to say those who are doing the fighting, i.e. the Ukrainians, should just give up, uh, allow the Russians to take Crimea. It, it's it's infuriating, frankly. So now to get yeah. more infuriated, let's move on to the people in the West. Yeah. Um, yesterday, an article came out uh, saying that the Council of Foreign Relations and Richard Haas and... Um, I'm not sure the other two Americans, yeah. but uh, they Graham both and, Cliff, uh, and uh, Charlie Cupshin, rather. Yes, yeah. that yeah. they uh, basically held secret meetings with Lavrov, Russia's uh, foreign minister in New York, um, that they uh, traveled back and forth to Moscow. I mean, apparently from the article, it sounded like there were several meetings um, having negotiations on Ukraine, but then what gets even more infuriating is around the same timeline they're meeting with um, Lavrov in New York, they also published an article in, I believe, Foreign Affairs, again, advocating for, for Crimea and Donbass to basically just be handed off uh, to Russia and let them keep it. And um, and that's it. And, and I mean, this is uh, the Council of Foreign Relations we know is funded by Len Blavatnik, who is one of Putin's wallets. And I mean, we've seen his name come up in U.S. elections and, you know, several of uh, Russia's um, uh, basically attacks on the West and and the movement of money. You know, and here we have a Blavatnik who even ha has there's a Blavatnik internship on Council of Foreign Relations um, website. And clearly, you know, again, I'm not going to make accusations. I don't have, you know, any kind of uh, proof that there was money moved from Blavatnik to them. But the point is, you have one of a uh, key figure who is close to Putin involved in a think tank who is taking having secret talks, first of all, allegedly behind the U.S. government's, uh, you know, back behind Ukrainians back and basically having these negotiations with a country whose you know leader is is a war criminal and has an arrest warrant out for him for kidnapping Ukrainian children to throw them inside of Russia and uh, re-educate them and erase their Ukrainian heritage so tell tell me <laughs> Well, sure. I, I mean, sadly, this is not a new thing. Um, there was an initiative called the Boisto Group back in 2014, which some of the same participants organized a meeting in Finland with Russian counterparts to talk about Ukraine without Ukrainians. And I, they, they published a, a piece in the Atlantic. I then, I was the president of Freedom House at the time and led a response to that and published a response in the Atlantic condemning that effort um, for no other reason than Ukrainians were not involved. And so uh, even back in 2014, the mantra was not to decide things about Ukraine without Ukrainians. This has been a mantra by President Biden and his administration um, since his he came into office. And here we are yet again with some of the same people talking to the Russians about Ukraine without Ukrainians. Uh, now, maybe they've been consulting the Ukrainians. The article that appeared on the NBC News website didn't indicate so. They apparently had uh, uh, briefed or, or provided some readout to the administration, but the administration came out and distanced itself from this effort. Uh, saying it didn't support it, it wasn't behind it, they hadn't asked these people to do this. Um, it, it's important to remember that they met with someone who has been sanctioned by the United States. Sergei Lavrov has been sanctioned by the U.S. Now he was allowed in for U.N. meetings. We're not really able to block someone who's even sanctioned. The 
former president of Iran had a controversy about this when he was on the sanctions list. He came to New York for a UN General Assembly meeting. We have certain obligations as the host country for the UN where we can't really block people, even if they've been sanctioned from attending. But it doesn't mean that Americans should be meeting with people who have been on the sanctions list. It's not a violation to meet with people on the sanctions list, but certainly not consistent with the spirit of the measures taken by the United States government and by others who have been sanctioning Russian officials for the invasion of Ukraine. So I, 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 I saw the article yesterday and I said, here we go again. Um, and so uh, the, some of these people don't learn from their past mistake and think that they can figure out ways to end this war that essentially sell out the Ukrainians. Um, they don't seem to be taking the Ukrainians' uh, voice and opinions into account. Uh, they deny the Ukrainians' agency. They are trying to decide this over the heads of the Ukrainians. And uh, it's something that should be stopped. It's, it's pretty outrageous. And just today, um, foreign affairs, uh, you mentioned the article back in April, um, but today published a piece, the title of which is Don't Let Ukraine Join NATO. Um, now, you know, it, it, foreign affairs is a place to have healthy debate, but there seems to be uh, a tendency to publish more pieces that talk about um, armistice. They published a piece in early mm -hmm. June um, uh, by Sam Cherub arguing for an armistice for Ukraine again without factoring in what the Ukrainians actually think and whether that would be a good idea. That would sell out Crimea uh, to the Russians. And so, yeah, it's been an unfortunate, um, I think, uh, tilt in, in this direction. Mm -hmm. um, I, I regret it. And uh, hopefully there'll be some responses coming in, in, the, in the near future to these articles that have appeared. Yeah, mm -hmm. I know on the, you know, other side of the water, our friends in this, you know, field were all outraged and, you know, and we're like, what are we, what are they doing? Like, why, yeah. you know, because. Well, it, but it's also really demoralizing to the yes. Ukrainians um, where the administration goes out of its way to say there won't be decisions made about Ukraine without Ukraine. And yet these individuals go off and do exactly that. And as the Ukrainians are, are in the early stages of their counteroffensive, to see these articles calling for uh, an armistice, to call for compromise, to call for negotiations, to say Ukraine shouldn't join NATO, it's incredibly demoralizing yeah. to the, the troops on the ground in Ukraine, to the citizens of Ukraine, who every day when they go to sleep don't know if they'll wake up the next day. We just saw this in Lviv. Uh, yeah. where I think it's now That's 10 right. people were killed yeah. as yeah. a result of uh, deliberate Russian bombing of an apartment building. And I mean, the Russian tactics are barbaric. They are war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And let's not forget that Vladimir Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court. And yet uh, these guys think, uh, I guess it was before the indictment, maybe I don't re exactly remember when it was, but these guys go off and meet with his foreign minister who himself is on the sanctions list. So yeah. it, it, it's pretty outrageous, I, I yeah. would say. Um, and I, I hope the exposure of it puts an end to it. But if if uh, passed as any precedent, we'll see it again. And I just want to make one tiny point that, I mean, this is uh, definitely, I mean, for me, at least, I've been watching this pattern um, since uh, last year, actually, before full-scale invasion, <laughs> kicking off with Sam Sharap. Um, but um, it's a it's a pattern. And this article in Foreign Affairs was in April. The counteroffensive didn't start. And once there is a successful counteroffensive, you will see another push in Western media of, again, saying that Ukraine should sit down for negotiations, just as mm -hmm. it happened in September and October, mm -hmm. as Ukraine is flying through to liberating, liberating land. You see suddenly this flurry of articles um, again saying, oh, my God, Ukraine should negotiate. There were no articles when Russia was moving the other way in um, mm -hmm. April, May, uh, June mm -hmm. of 2022. No negotiations there. It was only when Ukraine started successfully taking their land. And here it's the same thing as 
Russia is fearing a Ukrainian counteroffensive in April, and you knew from their talk shows, from their mm-hmm. articles, you have these Americans sitting down and basically saying, you know, here, just well, let's figure out how we could just, you know, get Ukraine on board to hand off territory and call it a day. Yeah. And, you know, as both of you know, no one wants this war to end sooner than Ukrainians. <laughs> It's yes. Ukrainians who are on the receiving end of, of Russia's barbaric bombardment. Um, but having gone through what they have, they want to win and they want they want to make sure this never happens again. And so it, it's it's incredibly important to uh, keep Ukrainian agency very much in mind. Ukrainians are the ones who are doing the fighting and tragically the dying every single day. Yeah defending their freedom, their independence, and their lives. And the least we can do is to support them and try to help them win rather than undermine them with these misguided, irresponsible, even dangerous initiatives and publications. Yeah. And, you know, it's, let's say, with these articles themselves, and Olga, I agree with you 100%, because as soon as, you know, Ukraine begins to take back its territory, boom. You know, we said, okay, and even coming up to NATO, the NATO, uh, you know, summit, I said, oh, there's going to be a flood, okay, of all of these kind of maneuvers uh, on social media. And they're all connected yeah. to Russia. Yeah, I mean, Sam exactly. Sharap, he's, he's an expert in Valdez. I mean, all yeah. you have to do uh, is go look at the Valdez website. Go look to see where they are. And yeah. another thing that is really just making my blood boil is a bit on the media. I'm not going to make any friends with this one. Hmm. Um what I see a lot uh, is this push sort of treating the counteroffensive as a TV series show where there's going to be a big, you know, uh, grand finale. And when is it going to be? When are you going to be, you know? And it's driving me crazy because it means that whoever is asking the question does not understand what the nature of war is and how wars are fought, right? David, can you clarify this a little bit with us? This is the liberation of the territory that Russia has taken illegally, okay, through warfare. This is a counteroffensive, and what are your thoughts on what I've just said? I agree completely. And, and, and look, the, the Russians have mined this territory relentlessly, and so the Ukrainians have to figure out how to navigate that. Um, they don't have the longer-range missiles that would be an enormous help to them if they were able to attack Russian forces and depots and other things more effectively. They are doing some of this, but more effectively, if they had the attack of missiles, which are these longer-range missiles than the HIMAR missiles, where there was debate last year about HIMARS, um, if they had the F-16s, that we're dragging our feet on these things. Um, we, we've done a lot. Don't get me wrong. We've, we provided Ukraine with a lot, but it's not enough and it hasn't been fast enough. And you're absolutely right that this kind of a counteroffensive has to be done very carefully. Um, the last thing Ukrainians want to do is to launch into something recklessly. Let's also remember that Zelensky is a democratically duly elected president accountable to his constituents. He does care, as do his military yep. leaders about their forces. They don't treat them as cannon fodder. They don't treat the sending them into a meat grinder like Putin and Shoigu and Gerasimov and Prigozhin do, um, where the Russians recruit from prisons to literally just send them out and get slaughtered just to use up Ukrainian bullets and missiles. Um, and so it's an entirely different approach that the Ukrainians take to this. And they do deserve to be given some slack and time in order to get this as right as they possibly can. And it is not like flicking on a light switch. Um, and, and so, again, nobody wants this war to end sooner than the Ukrainians. But they also want to make sure that they carry out this counteroffensive in a way that minimizes casualties as much as possible yeah. while recognizing that casualties are going to be inevitable but also uh, avoiding responding to an impatient West that mm-hmm. wants this war to end sooner than the Ukrainians. So uh, absolutely, that this is going to take some time. Let's give the Ukrainians credit for what they've accomplished already. They are regaining uh, control over land that had been illegally captured by, by Russian forces. And I remain confident that the Ukrainians can win this. We just have to stick with them. But again, not by sending our forces there. They're not asking for that. 
but they are asking for the means to fight so that they can win. And I think we have a, an absolute obligation to provide them with that. And just to add, because I always have a comment <laughs> for all the armchair generals, you know, who are sitting and like calculating, like, yeah. you know, this is not going quick enough. It's supposed to be oh, done yeah. by 6 p.m. today. And why? <laughs> um, you I know, we could we could have sent everything that we've slow dragged. We yeah. could have sent. I mean, we agreed to tanks if tanks were there last year, if high yeah. Mars were there, well, they were in November, but if they were there earlier, well, everything. Yeah. yeah, the attackums, the F-16s. I mean, for everyone who wants this war and thinks that it should be ended now, I mean, you know, put pressure to have Ukraine fully equipped because every single day that we um hold off, not only are Ukrainians dying, every yes. single day there is an attack of some sort and Ukrainians are dying. They're being terrorized. I can't even have a phone call with my friends and family and people in Ukraine without like an airy siren going off and or and they can't even go to sleep. They fall asleep three hours and airy siren goes off and they have to run to the, you know, bomb shelter or in the bathroom or in the hallway. So had we provided this last year, instead of having this debate three months, four months, finally a tank coalition, then we move on to F-16s. Now they're being delayed. If we provided this, the war would have been finished already. Finished. Ukraine would have pushed Russia out, you know? I mean, I remember the line, it was Jake Sullivan uh, several months ago saying, we believe the Ukrainians don't need F-16s right now. Yeah. Well, they actually did. <laughs> but even if they don't need them right now, they are going to need them. And decision making yeah. takes a long time in governments to transfer the weapon systems that they need. Um, again, we, we've done a, a good job. In I'm grateful. I am. Have. But every there seems to be a pattern here with Ukrainians ask for a specific weapon system. We say no. They ask again. We say maybe they ask a third time and we finally say yes. And during that period of dithering and delay, Ukrainians are dying. And yeah. so we have to speed up this process and anticipate what they're going to need down the road and make the decisions on that much faster than we have. Um, the, the F-16s are, are taking too long. Uh, yes, the Ukrainians need to train on them, but boy, if, if if we have to be amazed at how quickly the Ukrainians learn these new weapon systems and how they can adapt and adjust to them, and so we shouldn't prolong this anymore. But but one other thing, one of one of the things that's been missing in all of this is President Biden has not given a speech to the American people explaining why supporting Ukraine serves for the American domestic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. he, he gave a good speech in Poland after he visited Kiev, but Poland's not in the United States. Um, and so he, to this day, has not gone out to the American people to explain why supporting Ukraine matters, why it's important to do. You hear those who say focusing on Ukraine is taking our eye off the China ball, if you will. We're, we're focusing on the wrong threat. Um, well, last I checked, Russia invaded Ukraine. China hasn't yet invaded Taiwan. But moreover, how we react to Russia's invasion of Ukraine will have an impact on Chinese decision-making when it comes yep. to Taiwan. And if we want the Europeans on board helping us in dealing with the China threat, um, a way not to do it is to say to the Europeans, you deal with Ukraine, we're going to focus on Asia. Yep. We have to do both things at the same time. Moreover, the weapons we're providing to the Ukrainians are not the weapons that the Taiwanese would need to deal with a, an invasion mm. coming from China. So there, there is definite need to maintain the ability to deal with both challenges. But if President Biden gave a speech explaining to the American people why U.S. support for Ukraine is important, why it matters, why it serves U.S. national interest, I dare say that you would get Senator McConnell, you would get uh, Senator Graham, you would get other senators, you, you, you would get Chairman McCall, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Chairman Turner of the Intelligence Committee in the House, Chairman Rogers on the Armed Services Committee in the House. You might even get the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who would say, we don't agree with Joe Biden on pretty much everything, 
except when it comes to Ukraine. We stand united. It is bipartisan support. And we're here to, to stand with Ukraine until it wins. Not just as long as it takes either. That's another phrase that, that gets under my skin. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it means when we say as long <laughs> as it takes. Our goal should be to help Ukraine win, let the Ukrainians define what that is. But to me, it is until all Russian troops have driven off of all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. Yep. And and speaking of Graham, I'm normally critical of him nine out of ten times. Well, nine point nine out of ten times. But he actually did something very good with uh, Senator Blumenthal. So over the past week, Ukrainians have been warning about Russia mining the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant, which, by the way, is the second largest in Europe. Um, this these warnings have been going on. I know I personally on several podcasts last spring uh, discussed it last summer, discussed it. These warnings have been going on. The Russian insider um, in August, you know, had photos and, and information from insiders that Russia at the time not only drove tanks inside of a nuclear plant, but also mined the control rooms. And then here we are again with Zelensky warning that, you know, Russia may be preparing to blow up this nuclear uh, plant or cause a radiation leak, which obviously has been taken seriously enough because on top of all the other terrorism Ukrainians have to deal with, they also have been handed out over the past month iodine pills and taking courses on what to do in case of a radiation attack, how to, you know, like uh, what how the hospitals need to react and whatnot. So with that said, Blumenthal and Lindsey Graham came out and not only with words, but there is actually a bill on the floor right now and said that if Ukraine, if Russia, if there's even an accident at Zaporizhia nuclear plant, that Article 5 will be triggered. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think Russia would cross the line into causing an accident or blowing up the Zaporizhia power plant? And do you what do you think? How do you think the West would need to respond if Russia crosses that line? I rule nothing out. Um, it, it is possible. I think just in the past 24 hours, there have been some signs that the danger has been reduced a little bit. Um, but we, we shouldn't become complacent about that. The IAEA has stepped up its presence there. Uh, there is a lot of attention focused on this. The Russians may still set up a false flag operation where they will claim they're pulling back from Zaporizhia and it's the Ukrainians who would be responsible for any accident there. We shouldn't fall for that, of course. Um, but uh, just as if, if Russia were to use a tactical nuclear weapon, which I think the chances of that are very low. Uh, but if they were to do something with the Zaporizhia plan, I think we would have to respond because the dangers it would pose uh, to NATO allies would be significant, depending on which way the winds blow. But of course, one of the reasons why I, I, I am more inclined to think they won't cause an accident at Zaporizhia is you never know which way the winds are going to blow. And again, not that Putin cares about his own people, let alone Ukrainians, but there, there is as good a chance that the radiation could blow onto Russian territory, could go onto Russian territory and uh, cause huge problems for Russia itself. And um, so, but, but I think you're right. I, look, I think, I think in the Senate in particular, the support has been very strong, very bipartisan. Uh, the House, I actually think, is, is stronger than is often portrayed. Um, And if there is the need for an additional vote on a supplemental bill, um, I think if it happens this year, it will go through. It won't be easy, but I think it will go through. Um, But it's also just incredibly important. We come back to the issue about uh, supporting uh, Ukrainians and their morale uh, to see the Congress remain united bicamerally, bipartisanly um, is really important. Yeah, yeah. Another surprise, I think, no, that uh, you guys are looking at the American scene. I'm over here. And one thing, David, I just wanted your a brief comment on this. One of the transformational uh, surprises, let's say, was with Germany. Uh, you know how we talked about slow walking and, and we had the word Schultzing. Okay. He yeah. was just sort of, okay, no, no, I don't want to do anything. And then he's, you know, we, I saw a speech where he was just 
uh, raring and saying, no, we have to do this. And he was, you know, he was being heckled and he, and he heckled back kind of thing. Um, this is a true, and in Germany actually is the second, right? Uh, say in terms of providing arms, munitions, humanitarian aid to the United States uh, in Europe. Uh, can you just comment briefly on that? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, Germany has been up and down on this, but yeah. overall, um, uh, in the beginning days, Chancellor Schultz uh, uh, was very good. He talked about increasing German defense spending significantly, ended the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, and uh, came out very strongly in support of Ukraine. Now, we've seen over various periods of time since February of last year, the Germans pulling back, not allowing permission for Leopard tanks to go through. Mm -hmm. But then when we said we would provide the Abrams tanks and the Poles kind of forced their hand, the Germans got on board. Um, the, so, so I do think we've seen a, a better reaction from the Germans. I think they could do more, um, and, and they're going to uh, continue to be pressed to do more. The defense minister has been very good yes. um, in support of Ukraine. Yes. And, uh, so we want to encourage that kind of support and thinking, um, there'll also be pressure on Germany for the, uh, reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh, but here, too, it's important. We've talked about this, I think, before. Um, we have in, in the West over $300 billion in Russian assets, Russian hard currency reserves. We need to move from not just freezing, but seizing those assets, making them available to Ukraine for the reconstruction of the country to fix and repair the damage that Russia created and caused. Um, and so uh, th there really should be... Um, uh, it will reduce significantly the need for international lending agencies and for Western countries to provide the assistance for reconstruction if we have that money available to us and to Ukraine. Yeah, I know that the Europeans are working on it now, uh, let's say in um, uh, in this regard of trying to find a legal mechanism mm. to get their hands on it and transform it. But we're at the end Okay, Actually, <laughs> I want to ask. Okay. Oh, here we go. To, She's got it. <laughs> to wrap it up. I wanted to get more into it. I'll get into it in a future episode. But I think it's a very important point and it just changes, you know, the future of Russia. So um, with Wagner, uh, Wagner mercenaries, right? And everything that happened. I wanted to get into the logistics, but, you know, right now set that aside. We know that, you know, we've all suspected that this was a GRU unit that was created in 2014, you know, for annexation of Crimea mm -hmm. and then whatnot. But obviously, they always kept it as a private mercenary group, even though it's illegal under the Constitution. My question to you was, and, um, you know, going forward, in a recent meeting, Putin himself bragged, which was like, I was like, he's probably the only leader on this planet who's this stupid. But he bragged that um, the Wagner mercenary group has been funded by the state budget for the past year that they paid upwards of $2 billion um, to fund them for bonuses. And now this is an organization that Europe, uh, if it has in some countries in Europe, they are close to uh, calling it a terrorist organization. We, uh, for some bizarre reason, named it a transnational, what is it, a criminal organization, which makes no sense. But, you know, we need to put the pressure to, to uh, have it labeled as a terrorist organization. And we know that they have used the tactics the same as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I mean, the beheadings, the tortures, the disappearances, kidnappings, live executions with a sledgehammer, you know, on on a video that's then spread on social media. How does the international community go forward now, knowing that Putin has admitted that the state budget of Russia is funding a terrorist organization? Well, yeah, this is a subject, I think, for a longer discussion, but I'll just say um, Putin's acknowledgement that the Russian government has been funding Wagner was quite stunning. <laughs> uh, he also acknowledged that they had no idea what Wagner was doing with the money. And so it was a, 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 an acknowledgement that they can't keep track of billions and billions of dollars. I mean, I've, I've even seen a number as high as $10 billion mm -hmm. uh, mentioned by a Russian official 
going to Wagner. And it means that uh, what we all suspected, Wagner is uh, uh, an organization very close to the GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence. Um, it is carrying out um, orders that uh, the Kremlin has, has issued is it pretends to provide a distance between the Russian government and what's happening on the ground in places like Mali and Central African Republic and Libya, Syria, Ukraine, of course. Um, and so it, it means that um, whatever Wagner has done has been done at the behest of the Russian government. And the Russian government is as responsible for Wagner's atrocities, war crimes and, and crimes against humanity as Wagner itself is. Thank you. Yes. No, we just that was a very, very good point to bring up. Olga, because... I mean, for all the people asking for negotiations, the Russian state right. budget, well, you know, sure, sure. Funds the know. terrorist organization. Yep. And uh, Wagner doesn't hide it. I mean, they literally no. will put executions and, you know, and and spread it on social media. They exactly. take full responsibility besides the fact exactly. that they're you know, recruiting Americans for attempting to recruit former American military mm -hmm. members. And, you know, and they have a whole global recruitment outfit. So, yeah, exactly. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Great to be back with you. Yeah. Glad yeah. you're back. Well, we hope you're going to come on at some point. Maybe season four. Just kidding. <laughs> we'll have you on before then. <laughs> you're our man, David. You're our man. <laughs> I know. I know. We could have this conversation and turn it into like a six-hour podcast. I know. I know. I know. I know. But All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate Bye. it. Thank Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you for coming. Bye. Bye. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us out with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack and on our YouTube channel. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara. Our production team is headed by Maddie Kaparov and the theme music by Oreste Kamara. So please don't forget to visit our Kremlin File Substack for links to our socials and to wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts.